Shalom and welcome to the Matzav Podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I'm Eli Koaz, Digital and Communications Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow here at IPF. This week we want to discuss a pressing issue, the relationship between Israel and the diaspora, and how it is affected by recent events such as the alt-right Charlottesville protest. Despite the controversy, or maybe because of it, President Trump had a difficult time condemning the neo-Nazis and white supremacists. First, he condemned violence from many sides. Then he finally named neo-Nazis and KKK as repugnant. But later, he stated that there were fine people at the Charlottesville rally. Well, politicians from across the globe quickly rejected Trump's many sides statement and urged him to acknowledge and decry the racist, racist groups, uh, one very surprising leader stayed silent, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Even though Netanyahu often uses the Holocaust and global anti-Semitism as justification for Israel's need to be stronger and resilient, especially when it comes to dealing with Iran, Netanyahu refrained from criticizing Trump. Ayub Kara, the communications minister, claimed that the good relations with Trump are more important than denouncing neo-Nazis. Um, undoubtedly, if Obama was still in office, and probably if it was Clinton, Netanyahu wouldn't have been so cautious. Netanyahu's silence on the issue raised a lot of eyebrows, including my own, and has infuriated many Jews worldwide, who view Israel and Netanyahu especially as leading the opposition to global anti-Semitism. After Israel passed the conversion bill and canceled the construction of the egalitarian prayer pavilion at the Western Wall, the tensions between diaspora Jews and Israel have been on the rise. Many see these latest events as choosing political considerations over the unity of the Jewish people, something that has further intensified the relationship and raised many questions regarding the diaspora's involvement in Israel's affairs. We want to welcome Alon Pincas, a foreign relations expert former advisor to Ed Barak and the late Shimon Peres, and a former Consul General of Israel in New York. Hi, Alon. Hi, hello, everyone. Hello. How can we explain Netanyahu's silence? Why is he so afraid of upsetting Trump? It's, um, it's, inex- it's inexplicable. It is inexplicable. It is um, purely disgusting. It is almost unparalleled. Uh, the an Israeli prime minister, let alone one who self-ordains himself as the uh, uh, prime minister of the Jewish people, uh, refrains and keeps a very deafening and lengthy silence at a time when uh, Nazi flags and swastikas are branded and anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic slurs heard not in Slovakia, not in some uh, distant corner of Denmark or Hungary, but right in the middle of the United States of America. And I think that his, um, his fear of, of saying something or upsetting uh, uh, Trump um, is, is, a, is a triumph for, uh, for cynical temporizing and for uh, um, really, really uh, um, unacceptable and intolerable behavior. But can we explain it in some way? Is, I mean, I'm assuming there's a reason. There's always a reason, whether it's a political one or an ideological but, uh, one behind what Netanyahu does. So I'm just, I mean, I'm also, I, mean, I feel I the same as me. you that I'm really frustrated, but I'm yeah. just trying to figure out what can be behind this step. And I'm sure he also sees Trump's apprehensiveness to condemn 
his base as something if Bibi were to come out against Trump, he may feel that he's coming out, that Bibi's coming out kind of against, and he doesn't want to upset Trump when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, so I'm sure he's taking that into calculation. Okay, this we're we're talking about the same prime minister who could not uh, give a damn about the U.S. president and went on behind his back to talk to to a joint uh, session of Congress in 2015 on the Iran deal. Uh, we're talking about a prime minister who uh, uh, brands himself as some kind of a, a, a uh, an expert uh, with with no peer on on U.S. politics. Um, yet at the same time, he is neglecting uh, the vast majority, and I mean vast majority of American Jews, uh, and the vast majority of Americans for that matter, by, by maintaining his, his silence. Uh, this is a prime minister who was quick to denounce, and rightly so, by the way, every anti-Semitic incident in France, who traveled to France and called on, you, on, on French Jews to come to Israel. Um, got criticized for it, uh, yet stood his own and said, uh, this is what the Prime Minister of Israel must do. And here we are uh, on the day after Charlottesville, and then the following of this, the subsequent days after Charlottesville, certainly after the uh, uh, the President, President Trump's second reaction, the, 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 the less uh, um, condemning one, so to speak, and he's still maintaining his silence, um, this the only thing that I could tell you is that this is a prime minister who doesn't take anti-Semitism seriously, who thinks that anti-Semitism can be tolerated for whatever political expedient uh, uh, calculations of the sort that you accurately described, but I still think are unacceptable. Um, he's only against anti-Semitism if it suits him, and I know it's a it's a horrible thing to say about any and every Prime Minister of Israel, but the truth of the matter is that when a Nazi flag is flowing high, mighty, and proudly in in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel should stand up and say something. And by the way, although it is not my place, there is a way of condemning this, there is a way of denouncing this without getting personal with President Obama. You denounce the phenomenon. You don't need to criticize, I'm sorry, President Trump. You do not need to criticize President Trump ad hominem, and you could just uh, denounce and condemn the phenomenon itself. Yeah, and, and what's interesting in almost every speech that Netanyahu makes, especially in English, he'll always mention the Holocaust and that Israel is leading the fight against anti-Semitism, and here he has an almost an ideal opportunity to come out against against anti-Semitism in, in the place where it's almost least expected in the United States, and he's unable to do so. so. Eli, I'll tell you what, it's not an opportunity, it's an obligation, it's, it's a moral imperative for him to stand up and speak. Uh, certainly, when there's anti-Semitism of that kind, in, in a country that is home to the second largest Jewish community in the world, the United States of America. Um, I will never excuse uh, silence, but if this happened in some, some far-reaching uh, corner of Paraguay, um, and he said, this is, you know, I really shouldn't get into that right now, I can't stand up and condemn every act of anti-Semitism, otherwise I'll have nothing else to do all day, or no time to do anything else. 
But this is happening in America. This is broadcast live. Uh, this is happening in a city two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. This is happening in a city uh, uh, that is home to the University of Virginia. For God's sake, stand up and speak. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure that if it was uh, Obama or Clinton for that uh, matter, um, he would have not been silent. So, oh, but, you could go to Las Vegas with that. <laughs> and the, so, but and is it safe to say that basically he's putting political considerations above Jewish unity or his ideological basis even? Yes, yes, I think he is. I think he has a bad, tra bad track record on this. But even so, let me let me let me be as cynical as he is, and let me and try and see it through his lens and his perspective. Uh, this is a wrong move to make um, in terms of, of sensing and and seriously understanding the mood in America. Uh, who exactly is he patient and tolerant to? What uh, uh, Donald Trump base? That Donald Trump base. Um, has got nothing to do with Israel, has got nothing to do with foreign policy. Who is he trying to uh, 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 to placate here? Um, this, this really doesn't make sense, even if you accept the basic tenets of political expediency should triumph over um, uh, moral obligation in certain cases, which I am not, but even if you do, um, he made the wrong calculation, as always, by the way. So if the ADL and the IPF and, and, and J Street and, and even to a lesser extent APAC calls this for what it is, anti-Semitism and unacceptable neo-Nazi, white supremacist, uh, KKK, uh, um, and what have you, uh, so what? They're all wrong and he's right in not upsetting Trump. And, I, and let, let, let me repeat what I said a few moments ago. There is more than one way of condemning this without personally criticizing um, President Trump. If, if that was his consideration and calculation, um, he could have waited one day, he could have waited an hour, he could have uh, spoke against neo-Nazi and anti-Semitism, he could have even not, not, not mentioned Charlottesville by its name. Just stand up and speak. He did not. And even uh, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, said that Trump's response was unacceptable. So it just shows that there is really no, no reason besides Netanyahu's political considerations not to respond. I agree 100% with uh, what you just said. But, but I wonder what are these political considerations? I mean, what can be the logic behind these steps that he's taking or um, actually not taking. And I'm also wondering, could it be that the probes and the investigations against him are also kind of pushing him into a corner? Could they have anything to do with this? Well, look, we're looking at two gentlemen who are under investigation. One is under uh, uh, four separate investigations. That is Prime Minister Netanyahu. And the second, Donald Trump has an impending or ominous investigation um, um, a few months ahead of him or down the road. Uh, once uh, Robert Mueller uh, publishes his findings. So we're looking at two gentlemen who are sort of cornered. I, I, I have to tell you, Noah, I don't understand what his calculation has been because supposedly um, he is very skillful and very talented and has a good uh, tracker. He being Mr. Netanyahu has a good track record 
of distraction and, and changing the subject and spinning into an, an, another area. So this should have been, could have been a great opportunity for him um, to, to, you know, to make a big statement, to, to stand up, from, you know, take the moral high ground, stand up for what is right, for what is expected of the Prime Minister of Israel. So back to your question. So what are his political considerations and calculations here? I think um, I think there are two. One is um, I want to be on Trump's good side, so he will let off and 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 you know relent on whatever Israeli-Palestinian issue uh, uh, or Israeli-Palestinian uh, process pressures he might be thinking down the road of applying. Um, I think this goes. I being Mr. Netanyahu, I think this would go a long way to show that I'm a real ally. And, and when I tell him, look, when it was important to you that I, I don't denounce what happened because it would have been construed as being against you, um, I now expect reciprocity, uh, um, leave me alone. The second thing, and I think this is something that he's been doing for the last several days, is reintroducing uh, the Iran threat on the grounds of I have more urgent issues with Trump to discuss, particularly uh, um, trying to pressure him or, or exert influence on him uh, not to sign the next extensions of the uh, the next extension of the uh, of the sanctions bills on uh, the, as part of the JCPOA on Iran. Meaning, if I could get Trump um, to listen to me on on the Iran thing, to perhaps pull the U.S. out. I need to have a very clean and clear record of supporting him through thick and thin. This, you know, I'm not going to change uh, neo-Nazi uh, demonstrations in Charlottesville, Charlottesville or anywhere um, by virtue of one speech or one statement or one denunciation. So I'll just be quiet, you know, I'll let uh, uh, Eli Noah and alone, you know, vent their, their anger, vent their frustration, vent their disappointment, but the, the important things are Iran and the Palestinians, and I need Trump on my side. So I'll just keep quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, again, Noah, this, again, is a wrong calculation. He's not going to achieve either uh, of these goals, and, and more so, he missed an opportunity to prove that he truly is, and by the way, I genuinely think he believes he is, but he missed it's an opportunity to demonstrate that he truly is the, the uh, prime minister of the Jewish people, not just the elected prime minister of the state of Israel. Yeah, and also, I'm, I mean, what's interesting is you have these, these countries in Europe with rising right-wing parties, Hungary and Sweden, many of them have very nationalistic agendas that are often Islamophobic, xenophobic, and also anti-Semitic. And we and had... he's friendly to all of them. He's friendly to all of them. And, yes, but yes. with these countries, he doesn't have the same like, political calculations as with his relationship with Donald Trump. So it seems that this is almost a, I don't know if it's the Likud party or the Netanyahu government that has a difficulty dealing with these far-right European parties, because maybe they see some of their own party in, in these governments as well, I mean, in a different well, uh, way. In a way, I think you're right. I'll tell you more than that. If I simplify this and reduce this to some kind of a uh, of a bumper sticker, okay, a, a, a slogan, 
I think that, that the right wing in Israel is willing to tolerate anti-Semitism as long as there is a healthy and bigger anti-Islamic or anti-Arab sentiment uh, that those people harbor as well. So I will take the Dutch, the French, the uh, Hungarian or the Swedish ultra-right nationalists in their Islamophobia as long as they, they kind of mitigate their anti-Semitism or keep it at acceptable levels. I think this is morally bankrupt. Um, I don't think, by the way, that the Prime Minister of Israel should spend his entire day, week, months, a year, or term uh, talking and, and, and discussing anti-Semitism. But here was, as you said before, rightly, here was an opportunity, I call it an imperative, but nonetheless we're talking about the same thing, to stand up and say something. Um, he, he seems not to understand that this Islamophobic tendencies that you see either in a Steve Bannon uh, um, in the White House or recently departed from the White House or that you see in France or that you see in Hungary is not doing Israel any favors. Uh, this is not pro-Israeli. The fact that they dislike is, uh, Islam or Muslims, the fact that they are resentful or outright hostile to Arabs, be it in the form of demonstrations or immigration uh, uh, reform in the U.S., doesn't make this all pro-Israeli. And, and, and one other uh, issue that you raised uh, was contained in your, in your remark, Eli. Uh, his relationship with Trump, um, we assume um, it is a good relationship. I don't know that for a fact. It's never been tested. Um, I don't know that this will go on uh, for a long time, assuming these two gentlemen will, keep, will stay in office, um, an answer for which I do not have if they will. I, I absolutely am not sure that this relationship is actually good. And by the way, one last uh, um, comment on this. At the time, and uh, Noah alluded to it a few moments ago, at the time that Obama was president, Mr. Netanyahu, again, cynically and in a manipulative way, used Congress against the president. Right now, he is disarmed to a degree because he doesn't have Congress to use against the president because the Democrats distrust him or dislike him, and the Republicans are the majority in both the Senate and the House of Representatives. And the, the GOP in the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate are slowly but gradually and visibly uh, beginning to stand up uh, their ground uh, in terms of their relationship with Mr. Trump. And when Mr. Trump is in a, a uh, not so good relationship with uh, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Bob Cor Senator Corker from Tennessee, when he insults John McCain, when he insults Lindsey Graham, when he picks a fight with Mitch McConnell, what is Mr. Netanyahu going to do? So at some point, he's you know something has to give here. Either he has his buddies in Congress, which then, by the way, never came true for him because he doesn't interest them that much, or he's going to stand by uh, the president at a time down the road, a few months from now when the GOP-controlled Senate and the Republican in the White House may be at real odds between them. I'm also wondering, how do these events um, impact the uh, Jewish diaspora-Israel um, relations? I mean, as we talked before, um, Netanyahu 
claims to be the protector of the Jewish people. He claims to bear yes. this torch, uh, and now he's silent. And this kind of adds up to everything that happened in the past few months in regards to the conversion bill and to the uh, egalitarian uh, prayer pavilion that was canceled. Um, is there a rift happening right now in the Jewish world, and we're kind of overlooking it? No, you, no, 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 you're not overlooking it uh, by mere fact that we're discussing it right here, and I've seen people write about this uh, in newspapers and radio and talk about it in radio shows, even some television shows in both the U.S., in the U.S. and, and in Israel. Uh, look, I don't know that one incident as, as uh, serious as it is, the, the uh, refrain from commenting on Charlottesville, I don't think that's going to have a visible impact on this relationship. I do think, however, that there is a trajectory to this relationship. And I do think that there are many American Jews, and when you say world jury, you're essentially referring to American Jews, or let's call it North American Jews, the U.S. and Canada. Um, I think that they, that many of them, the majority, I, cannot, I, I don't know if it's 51% or 80%, feel that, that Mr. Netanyahu, by the way, he hasn't, he is not the first, but he's certainly doing it in a very blatant uh, way, has disassociated himself from their concerns. Um, the, the reform and conservative Jews of America, who comprise 80% of American jury, um, feel, um, you know, neglected by him, um, in a way totally removed from him and disassociated from him. They understand that he has political calculations because of the Israeli political system, but they also understand that the promises that have been made, and I and I know of all the uh, you know Rabbi Rick Jacobs has been there and others have been there, being the Prime Minister's office, have received not only promises but written promises to do certain things, and they're not being done. And then you know, and this is about conversion and who's a Jew and who's allowed to pray in the. Uh, Western Wall in the Kotel uh, uh, area, but it's not just that. It's his total disdain for what he calls liberal American Jews, which, by the way, um, is the majority of American Jews. He wrongly equates liberal American Jews with leftist Israelis. These are not the same uh, uh, creatures, political creatures. Uh, most American Jews are liberal. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily leftists in the Israeli sense. They're liberal in the American sense. And I think that many of them in the last several years have grown um, uh, uh, far from him, distant from him. Um, I don't know that many of them buy into his, I'm also your prime minister. Um, by the way, every prime minister since David Ben-Gurion in 1948 or 49 after the first election, um, likes to describe themselves as the Prime Minister of the Jewish people. Only one, Mr. Netanyahu himself, is has been taking this seriously and genuinely believes that he is the Prime Minister of the... And, and, and by the way, I agree with him, and I think that this should be the attitude. Yet, when it comes to actually acting on this, uh, um, you know, self-awarded title, um, he's nowhere to be found. Do you think there's a limit to what the uh, world jury would endure. Yeah, but 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 you have to be fair to uh, this. This is an ongoing um, 
uh, trend, uh, the, the disassociation or the uh, the drifting apart of American Jews and, and the state of Israel, and and the centrality of Israel in the in the lives or definition of, of being Jewish um, in America, um, that's been cracked. There are cracks, and that has been weakening, um, irrespective of Mr. Netanyahu. Instead of covering these cracks. He's proactively widening them for whatever calculations and, and political political expediency that he sees fit. And I think that if you're already halfway baked into the idea that you and Israel have grown apart, you living in, in Cleveland or Miami or New York, and you feel that you've grown apart or distant from Israel, uh, Mr. Netanyahu did not cause this, but he most certainly is strengthening and solidifying this position, or vindicating it if you felt uh, this way strongly for for some time. I don't know, you asked about will they endure, uh, you know, again, it's not one incident. I don't think that any anyone living, any, uh, any average uh, Jewish American person living in Chicago uh, or any place else ever thought of Mr. Netanyahu as being their prime minister, but they, they had a sense of pride that this is the state of Israel and this is the prime minister of Israel. Uh, when he says to them, you're lesser Jews because you go to a conservative or reform synagogue, when he said, your daughter can't pray in the, or your sister or your wife or your mother can't pray in the Kotel, uh, when, he, when he goes to Congress behind their president's back, um, when he then fails to denounce uh, neo-Nazi Flags and anti-Semitic uh, slurs in in slogans in in Charlottesville. Um, yeah, I think it's you know the the, the 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 endurance is is being tested here, and it's and, and it's a bad sign because it's going to take a lot of work to repair this relationship um, in the, in the upcoming years. And I'm not sure it can. I, I believe it can be done, but it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. And I think for a while it was mostly on the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue where Netanyahu was kind of causing a divide from a lot of liberal Jews. But this has grown into into regarding religion, and now we have the failure to confront yeah. anti- anti-Semitism. Yeah. And these are things that are consensus issues in the American Jewish community, whereas the Israeli-Palestinian issue is more s- split, and American Jews, even if they are more liberal, they refrain from really commenting because they feel that it is Israelis' decision ultimately and it's not theirs to say what to do with I, it. I, I, I agree, but but instead of dividing or breaking down the causes of this into the Palestinian issue, the who is a Jew issue, uh, uh, the Israel and Iran issue, Israel, the Israeli meddling in American politics and vice versa issue, look at it as a whole. Try and look from a broad perspective, or zoom out, uh, for that matter. Um, what most American Jews, and, I, and when I say most, I use that freely. Um, there is, I don't know, a ten percent or slightly more, twenty uh, percent uh, of Orthodox, of which uh, half are modern Orthodox in, in America. Uh, but the eighty percent of American Jews who affiliate themselves as either reform or conservative or reconstructionist or unaffiliated or non-affiliated or even atheists for that matter but but still feel strongly about being Jewish 
their identification with Israel has been weakening for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, you could break it down into the Palestinian issue, the Adams a Jew, but as a whole, they feel, and I think that some American uh, Jewish Jewish American uh, people have written about this extensively. Um, there's a book, by the way, that came out uh, called uh, Troubles in the Tribe uh, about that. I think what they see, first of all, there's a generational change, but, but all generations see a distancing uh, based on Israel's uh, departure from agreed and consensus liberal issues. And again, let's not equate the, the American liberal with the leftist Israeli. These are not the same thing. Uh, these are not the same issues, and these are not necessarily the same people. But we're looking at a different set of values, one which American, again, many American Jews feel Israel has been uh, uh, moving away from. On the other side, on the other side of this equation lies Israel that is less and less interested, less and less knowledgeable, less and less understanding of what American uh, uh, Judaism is, what American Jewry represents who they are. Ask an average Israeli, he doesn't know what a Reconstructionist is. In fact, he doesn't know what a Reform is, a Reform Jew is. You know, Israelis think that APAC is this, this, this one huge Jewish organization that exerts uh, um, a lot of influence on the President and Congress, and, and, and that's the extent of American Jewry. And the money they give to this hospital, to that museum, and to the uh, uh, university you went to. Uh, but if you seriously look at this, there is a generational uh, a change going on and a sense in America that Israel is moving away from shared values. I definitely agree, Alon. And maybe let's move a bit to the Israeli-Palestinian issue and talk about the, the kushner Greenblatt oh, yeah. visit, oh, all the fun that <laughs> went on over there. I wish anything to say about that. <laughs> no, well, no. I'm not being dismissive. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, there's, there's so little. But go ahead, by all means, ask. We'll try. We'll try. Well, let's talk about the State Department's remarks. Um, I'm on the two days ago, um, Heather Nauert. Let's listen to what she said, and then we'll we'll talk about it. We believe that both parties should be able to find a workable solution that works for both of them. We are not going to state what the outcome has to be. It has to be workable to both sides. And, and I think really that's the best view as to not really bias one side over the other, to make sure that they can work through it. It's been many, many decades, as you well know, that the parties have not been able to uh, come to any kind of uh, good agreement and sustainable solution to this. So we leave it up to them to be able to work that through. So this is, I mean, it's the same, the same line that Trump took in his press conference when he said, one state, two state, whatever both sides work on. I mean, for the Palestinians, it's very important exactly. to them that a two-state solution is what the goal is. And, but it seems even after six months in office, after Greenblatt has met with Abbas 20 times, with Netanyahu more than a dozen times, and they still can't even say we're going for two states, we're going for one state, we're going for 17 right. states. I mean, it seems like there's no plan here and they have no idea what they're doing. If I well, can just add seem, that, seem there is no plan. If I can just add that, I also find this to be very uh, bizarre, considering the fact that Netanyahu already 
agreed in a sense to the two-state solution. He already declared that this is also his goal and vision. Um, he talked about it extensively in the past. So why are they so afraid? Who are they afraid of? I mean, if it's not Netanyahu and the Palestinians obviously want a two-state solution, why is the Trump I mean, administration so reluctant to just say the words? I mean, they for sure understand that Netanyahu is in a coalition w- with Naftali Bennett and the Jewish home and with a lot of Likud party members that are opposed to two states. So, I mean, right. they, they realize that Netanyahu is in a difficult spot. But I don't think this this is response. Yes. Their policy just is is just reflective of that. There must be something something else there. No, 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 no. There's nothing else there. What you saw, what you heard, is the plain truth. I, I look. You know, we can talk about this forever about this this topic, and basically, we'll, we'll we'd be treading water. Um, I fault not. Trump and his Mideast team, or whatever you choose to call the, 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 those individuals, are they a team or not? Do they have a policy? The reason that there's no peace process, the reason that there is no um, real adherence and effort toward a two-state solution is entirely the fault of, of Palestinians and Israelis. I think the idea that you can uh, uh, blame a U.S. administration uh, for the lack of progress is, is a fallacy. And, and, and by the way, that's the one thing Israelis and Palestinians have always managed to agree on, and that is let's blame the U.S. president. He's too, he's too involved. He's not involved enough. The Secretary of State doesn't come here often enough. The Secretary, Secretary of State comes here too often. Always, There's always an excuse. That being established, the U.S., and I think you mentioned this in, in, in your opening remark here, uh, the U.S. does not have a policy. And I think what the State Department spokeswoman said is is essentially consistent with what um, Mr. Trump said, uh, President Trump said at his press conference with Netanyahu. He said it in a dismissive, indifferent, matter-of-factly, casual, I don't know what the hell you guys want from me manner. You know, one state, two state, you just quoted that, Eli. Um, My take at the time was not that he... Um, doesn't care, but that he doesn't really know the difference between the two-state, one-state thing. Now, I do expect the U.S. to stand up and develop a policy. Um, if you know, if this trip um, is not going to bear any fruits, and it is not, and it did not, and it will not, uh, then the least the U.S. can do is is proclaim its support for the two-state. Uh, model, not because it is feasible tomorrow morning, not because the sides can actually agree on how to implement it uh, next week, but because this is stated U.S. policy for the last almost three decades. If the U.S. chooses to change a path, uh, then the U.S. should stand up and say so. Now, when the President of the United States and then the spokeswoman, a spokesperson for the State Department of the United States, basically says that two states is not a must, is not a requirement, and one state is actually acceptable, that is an undermining, no less, an undermining of U.S. commitment to Israel's security. Not because I think that the two-state solution is implementable tomorrow or deliverable next week or is an easy thing to do. In fact, I think the the case for it is weakening. However, however, the alternative to two states, 
to a two-state model or two-state solution is a one-state solution. Unless, and there is a third uh, option here, unless Mr. Trump has heard from Mr. Netanyahu that he's not really supportive of the two-state model, that he had to make that Barilan speech uh, in 2009 under duress, under extreme pressure from President Obama, and, and the Palestinians can't be trusted, yet the status quo was manageable. That would bring us, obviously, to the point where both Israel and the, the, the very extremists uh, in the Palestinian uh, movement, such as Hamas, to, the, to a point of, of, of sharing and collaborating on not going forward and not doing anything, assuming the status quo is either manageable or beneficial. I think that is a danger to the state of Israel. Um, you know, this is not what the uh, topic of this podcast is about, the one state, two state thing. And, and I know that IPF has worked extensively on explaining those differences. But what you heard from the spokeswoman for the State Department is essentially an admission that the U.S. is, is totally lost uh, in regard to this issue. It has no policy. Um, it will not adhere to previous administration's policy for, for one reason and one reason only, because it was the past administration's policy. It has no clear uh, um, uh, vision of what a policy should look like. Um, it is waiting to hear creative ideas from the Palestinians and the Israelis, none of which will come. And so we're basically at the point where these um, meetings and the, these these uh, trips of American, of uh, Mr. Greenblatt, Mr. Kushner, or whomever else joins them, is is just one huge waste of time and energy. So that being said, what is the best we can hope for? I can't answer that, Eli. Before you explain to me who exactly are we, we being Americans, we being Israelis, we being. Israelis Israelis and American Jews that care about Israel and its future as a Jewish and democratic state. It's very, very, you're you're pulling me. I'm not not resisting. I'm just stating a fact for those who will listen to this podcast. You're pulling me into politics, into Israeli politics, because the answer in my mind is very simple. A right-wing approach or left-wing approach, uh, pick the one you like or try and triangulate and find some kind of a common... Uh, uh, policy to, of, of containing both left wing and right wing. All of this could happen only after Mr. Netanyahu is not prime minister. As long as he is prime minister, and by the way, I don't think he's to blame for uh, um, he's a hundred percent to blame for the lack of progress. There are the Palestinians on the other side. These are not exactly Swedish Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts that you're we're negotiating with. But the point is. Um, we, as Israelis, we as American Jews who still care about Israel and its well-being and still want to see it as a Jewish democracy, uh, we will have to wait until Mr. Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. I didn't want to go into the political angle of this, but you, Eli, you... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all right. We right. tried to <laughs> finish in an optimistic note. It didn't really succeed. <laughs> we were attempting to do that. That uh, is true. Thank you so much, Alon, and for, uh, for all those very enlightening comments. Um, I think we can all just hope that 
I don't know, something positive can come out of this very grim situation. Um, I'm optimistic, don't, don't, don't misunderstand this conference as being pessimistic. I'm trying to be realistic in describing what's going on now. And in terms of the future, uh, I'm much more optimistic. That's good to hear. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thank uh, you. And thank you for all our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and register to our newsletter on our website, matzavblog.com. Until next time.